Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. DeSantis, um, uh, his team, there was an article in Politico right before, the, right before they announced in which it was a rare case in which uh, somebody in the campaign off the record went to uh, put mainstream media outlet and explain their strategy. They said the strategy is going to be to say that we're, we're winners, Trump's not a winner, and we're far more extremist than Trump. Um, and that, uh, you know, that what the uh, uh, base wants is a really, really vile and mean candidate who's really going to punch down harder on gay people and teachers, etc. And we and and, uh, and women who want reproductive rights. And we're going to show that we're far more mean. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I have uh, one of my favorite recurring guests, David Lurie, who is a lawyer and a political commentator. He's written a lot of good stuff uh, for public notice, the newsletter that I publish, including uh, today a piece on Ron DeSantis, uh, someone who he has actually written about now going back about five years um, on how campaign resets will not fix what's broken with DeSantis and his campaign, kind of a, a pre-mortem looking at what went wrong. Uh, even though DeSantis is still running, um, it seems kind of like a foregone conclusion at this point that uh, his campaign will fizzle out. Uh, you know, maybe we will live to uh, regret these words and, you know, someone will pull this clip uh, a year from now when DeSantis is uh, at the RNC being made the Republican nominee, but I kind of doubt that's going to happen. And so David and I kind of go deep looking at, you know, the problems with DeSantis politically, personality wise. And uh, we discuss, you know, if it was even possible for someone like DeSantis to beat Trump this cycle. We also get into Trump's legal issues. Uh, David has a lot of expertise just on how the federal court system works. And so we talk about um, how some of the motions to change venues in the Georgia case could gum up the works, uh, you know, what Trump legal defenses might look like, and uh, just kind of the broader state of play now that we've seen all of these indictments, all four of them, the New York one, the two federal ones, and the Georgia one, and uh, how those will impact, you know, Trump politically, but also what his legal fortunes look like, uh, you know, and the the possibility that he could serve time in prison, um, you know, either uh, sometime in the near to midterm future, or possibly, you know, if he wins uh, the presidency again after he is done in the White House. Uh, we also wrap up the conversation today with a little bit about Hunter Biden, um, simply because I think there is a lot of confusion about what's going on there. And David actually makes a case towards the end of the podcast that uh, Hunter is being treated unfairly with this special counsel who uh, Merrick Garland appointed uh, just a few days ago to oversee the case. So um, thank you for tuning into the show. I ask uh, viewers and listeners, if you appreciate what we're doing here, to please subscribe to the show where you can. Uh, smash that like button if you're watching this on YouTube and share it with your friends, family, colleagues, uh, whoever you think will enjoy the show to help spread the word. And I'll also work in a plug here that uh, my newsletter, Public Notice, a lot of good stuff uh, in the newsletter this week. In addition to David's piece today, I had Lisa Needham yesterday really unpacking the Georgia indictment, uh, both the details of it and the broader context. And I've got some good stuff coming up yet this week uh, in, you know Friday and possibly a special edition on Saturday this week too. So if you are into this podcast, you will probably like my newsletter. You can go to publicnotice.co. And this week I'm offering free trials to all new subscribers um, if you, you know, take advantage of the free trial, you'll get full access to the site for a week, and then you can make a decision. Uh, I think you will like what we're doing and hopefully uh, sign up uh, longer term as well. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation today with David. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by David Lurie. David is a returning guest to the podcast. I think you were actually on the second episode back in March. Um, before Trump had been indicted four times over. So there's been a lot of news since then. Right. But uh, you've also been contributing a lot of good stuff to the newsletter, Public Notice, uh, including today, kind of a pre-mortem on DeSantis's failed presidential campaign, uh, kind of unpacking how and why it went wrong and why 
a reset will not save him. So, uh, David, thanks for making some time this morning to talk. I guess this is my second. Uh, uh, thanks for having me, having me, Aaron. I guess this is my second pre-mortem because I, I did one before he announced, as I recall. So, yes. Uh, yeah. That's right. kind of well, yeah. and I do want to get into that, and maybe you know, let, let's maybe start there actually, um, because. Um, I would consider you to be one of the country's, I think, foremost DeSantis experts at this point. And I say that because uh, not only have you been writing about DeSantis for public notice, um, but you know, going back, you were writing about him for the Daily Beast, I think, as far back as like 2019, if not even right. sooner than that. And uh, so, you know, I think maybe a good place to start. And we will get to some of the Trump stuff that's probably bigger, you know, bigger news stories this week. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh Maybe let's begin with why did you start writing about DeSantis kind of back when he was sort of off the radar nationally, I would say. And um, beyond that, are you at all surprised given your background with him at how ineffective and kind of flailing his presidential uh, campaign has been? You know, it's a good question because uh, as I've looked back, uh, this isn't necessarily by design, but there are a couple of individuals during the kind of Trump era are not Trump that I've written about uh, consistently. Uh, Bill Barr was one that, that I uh, 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 wrote about you know, over a period of years. And DeSantis is the other, uh, probably comes second to Barr, as you said. Um, because I think the answer to your question is, I think he's an ideal type. He exemplifies uh, in a negative sense, a lot of what's been going on in the Republican Party uh, during the uh, Trump era. Um, and he's jumped from strategy to strategy to try to uh, amp up and benefit from anger. That's uh, the common thread, um, the anger of the Trump base. And he's been planning to run for president since um, he became governor. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Based on that strategy. Yeah. And, and um, you know, for people who maybe don't follow this stuff as close as you or I do, um, DeSantis was, when he was in Congress, um, kind of a Trump lackey. And, you know, Trump has kind of himself brought this up in attacking DeSantis that he was kind of a, a nothing in Congress, which is kind of true. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't a guy that was getting a lot of headlines or, uh, right. generating, you know, like heavily involved in major investigations, things like that. And then when he ran for governor in 2018, um, kind of the lasting image um, of that is a campaign ad that he did where he was having his young children build Trump's border wall. And um, I remember even at the time kind of taking note of that because it was like a, you know, it was like something you'd see in like North Korea, like a Trump cult of personality. And that was, you know, that was kind of the, the centerpiece of his campaign. Um, he ended up squeaking a very narrow victory over Andrew Gillum and, um, you know, of course, won by 20 points last year's. And I, I think actually I would, I would refer people back to the first time that you appeared on the podcast, because I think we kind of got into, you know, um, how the 20 point victory at DeSantis had. Um, it might be incorrect to interpret that as like a huge landslide in the sense that he was overwhelmingly popular. I mean, there were demographic changes in Florida that contributed to that um, factors that go beyond, you know, DeSantis's appeal uh, to Florida voters. But um, yeah, so he, you know, he kind of came up as like a member of the Trump cult of personality, um, one in Florida and now with, you know, Republican control of the legislature there has been very effective in a way in the sense that, you know, he signed lots of legislation into law. Um, he's probably waged the culture war. Um, I was going to say more successfully, I don't know if successful is the right word, but more strenuously um, than has been the case with other governors or even members of Congress who are Republicans. Um, and he tried to parlay this into a presidential run. Now, now maybe this is kind of a good place to take this conversation, um, is that, you know, when DeSantis launched his bid, um, you know, which was kind of an unofficial bid for a number of months before he made it official, this was back, you know, over last winter. And, you know, for people, there's been a lot that's happened since then, but it's worth remembering that the midterms went very poorly for Trump with a lot of his candidates who he campaigned for losing in the Senate. Um, you know, around that time, the investigations into him were ramping up. And coming out of that midterm cycle, DeSantis was kind of the great Republican hope as someone who could beat Joe Biden in 2024. And that led to a situation in the, you know, 
uh, January, February, March, where DeSantis and some of the national polling was pretty close to Trump, uh, including, you know, being right. slightly ahead of, of him in, in certain polls. And so what, what do you think changed? You know, let, let's go from that point in time where it looked like DeSantis was kind of a viable alternative to Trump, someone who could really challenge him for the nomination to this point, you know, maybe six months or so later, where he's become kind of this clownish punchline. Um, you know, as you detailed in your piece today for public notice, he's kind of getting punked not only by Trump, but by um, members of the Florida delegation in Congress who traveled with Trump to the Iowa State Fair and kind of humiliated him while DeSantis was there as well over the weekend. Um, how do you explain that, you know, kind of disintegration from being in a real position of strength a few months ago to being kind of like a, a joke here, you know, in midsummer? Well, uh, I think you've been an excellent DeSantis watcher, and it's because, among other things, you've picked up on his clownishness. You know, he's he is a clown. Um, he's anyone who pays even the slightest attention to him from the beginning has uh, uh, would recognize uh, that he has incredibly bad political skills and um, is entirely non-charismatic. But as for the, <laughs> that's that's my preamble to, to the to answering your question. But what's happened, um, in my opinion, in this critical time period uh, between his uh, his reelection as governor, right? And now is that uh, DeSantis has pursued exactly the same strategy from that point, you know, uh, 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 you know, last year, right, November of last year, mm -hmm. until now. He is not what you would call a supple politician who responds to uh, the situation that he's in and modifies his strategy and his tactics in response to the environment, which of course is the critical attribute of any successful politician. I'm, I'm not a pundit, but I think that any, any uh, political observer would agree with me that that's what you've got to be able to do is observe right. what your audience is doing, observe what's going on in the country and respond. DeSantis doesn't do that. So he, this, uh, he picked a strategy, and the strategy was, as we all know, I think most of your viewers know, to attack <clears throat> um, Black people um, and uh, LGBT, LGBT people, and um, more broadly... Um, migrants. Yeah, migrants, of course. But more broadly, uh, uh, anyone who's not... <clears throat> A white uh, white Christian, right, in the country, yeah, and demonize them, right? And he picked various, as as this, as, as as you mentioned, very with in the case of migrants, various hot button enemies um, to go after. In almost every case, they were individuals or groups that were totally defenseless, right. <laughs> And usually victims of one sort or another in the society, and attack them. So, right as he was amping up his presidential campaign, and this this was by design, right? He he uh, uh, attacked asylum seekers, right, and had this this uh, performatively sadistic event filmed on, live on Fox News, in which he dumped a bunch of defrauded migrants on Martha's Vineyard, where uh, Barack Obama and other prominent African-Americans vacation in the summer. Um, that uh, was going on at the same time as he uh, was attacking teachers in and literally, you know, threatening to jail teachers in uh, Florida. Um, and <clears throat> as he was uh, going after a very popular elected prosecutor in Tampa who he illegally uh, removed from office. Mm. So those were the those were the signal strategies that he was pursuing at that time. He's pursuing exactly the same strategies right now. Although there's nothing nothing has changed. Yeah. It, it seems like Republicans though broadly um 
are okay with all that stuff. I mean, it's more with DeSantis. It seems like as we've kind of touched upon, it's the the lack of charisma, the lack of kind of political skills that seems to be holding him back more than anything. And um, I'm curious if you think that there was even an effective case against Trump for him to make. Um, right. The more that I've kind of thought about this, I mean, it seems like it's almost an impossible needle to thread for some of these Republican candidates where they are trying to not alienate Trump supporters who they need. You know, it's such a large contingent of the the party at this point that you can't really win a primary without um, winning over some of them. And, you know, if you attack Trump, you know, they love Trump. So you're going to kind of push them away. Um, now, I always thought that with DeSantis, and this has come up a few times, you know, with different guests that I've had on the podcast where we've talked politics, that the most effective case would have been to kind of contrast his status as a winner in Florida and the success that he's had signing a lot of bills into law with kind of the, you know, obviously Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, um, the fact that he lost the election, of course, but then also, you know, that he wasn't an extremely effective president. I mean, you could look at even the border wall, which DeSantis, again, in 2018, made a big part of his campaign, that he supported Trump's efforts to build one, but Trump, you know, didn't really succeed in actually building one. So, you know, I thought there were a few areas there, you know, basically the winner loser dynamic. Um, but, you know, maybe what the calculation was, I don't know if they like focus group this, I'm sure they did, you know, some, uh, the campaign did some work of its own to kind of affirm that this might not have been a wise strategy. Um, you know, I, I would assume the calculation was just that if you went there, you would alienate too many Trump supporters and you need those people, you know, to, to kind of reach a, a critical mass in this primary. I think those are all uh, the, uh, good observations. I have a couple of things though that, again, I just having watched this process of the, the, the campaign disintegrating, um, a few responses to that. First of all, simple fact is there was never a strategy of going after Trump. The strategy was, I actually think to the extent they had one and articulated one, very close to the one you just articulated. You know, and in fact, DeSantis, um, uh, his team, there was an article in Politico right before the, right before they announced, in which it, it was a rare case in which uh, somebody in the campaign off the record went to uh, put mainstream media outlet and explained their strategy. They said the strategy is going to be to say that we're we're winners, Trump's not a winner, and we're far more extremist than Trump, um, and that. Uh, you know that what the uh, uh, base wants is a really, really vile and mean candidate who's really going to punch down harder on gay people and teachers, et cetera, and we and and uh, and women who want reproductive rights. And we're going to show that we're far more mean, you know, toward these you know uh, groups than Trump is. And he's implemented that right to some extent, right? You know, he's emphasized. Um, You'll recall, uh, your readers will recall, and I discuss in the uh, latest piece, the secretly DeSantis authored videotape yeah. that uh, attempted to uh, uh, demonstrate that Trump is too friendly to L L yeah. LGBT people, but actually appeared to demonstrate um, DeSantis' own affinity for, uh, uh, as Secretary Buttigieg put it, oiled up bodybuilders. Yeah. No, I, I thought the way yeah. that you the way you described that was great, where you said that it, it's simultaneously homophobic and homoerotic, which uh, I don't think I came up with that. I can't remember who, I, who did that. That sticks with I'm me. I'm sorry, I didn't very get true. credit. To, very true. Yeah, but um, but I think Secretary Buttigieg did as well. Um, yeah, but you know the same kind of approach is the one they've used on uh, reproductive rights. You know, in a very mechanistic way. Well, let's sign a six-week abortion virtual abortion ban. In Florida, first they, first DeSantis had signed a uh, sorry six week one fifteen week one, then he signed a six week one. Right, right. The idea was, well, that's going to really show that we're more antagonistic to abortion, you know, reproductive rights than Trump is. And Trump was like, "Good, do that." Yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, because what he recognizes and DeSantis doesn't is that it's not a position on an issue right it's not that 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 is the that is the um reason that trump any particular issue is the reason that trump uh 
controls the Republican Party. As you said, it's because of his charismatic personal connection yeah. to uh, the base. And that's what, that, was, that was part of your question to me, and I agree with you. That's why it's impossible to attack Trump by being more right-wing than Trump. Yeah. Well, it, let's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. If you're ready to get started, go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting. We're talking about this connection that Trump has with the base and um, how the the primary at this point seems more like a coronation than an actual contest. Um, But, you know, one thing that kind of occurred to me um, as I was prepping for this podcast and just thinking about topics to discuss with you is that, um, you know, let's hop over to the the Trump indictments. Um, But this is kind of related to what you just said, where, you know, obviously with the, the federal cases, I think we all kind of understand that Trump, if he wins, can make those go away. You know, it doesn't even need to be a self-pardon. It could just be, you know, making Matt Gates the, uh, you know, the attorney general and right. he'll close up these invest. You know, he'll close up these cases basically. But obviously, with the the Georgia situation is a little bit unique. It's a and New York as well. But um, you know, where these are state charges, um, so you know there might be kind of a roundabout way that Trump, you know, leveraging his power as the chief executive of the country could make them go away. But it wouldn't be quite as direct or neat and clean as it, as it is in the federal context. Um, so, you know, what does that look like? I know you mentioned in a DM exchange that we had, you know, yesterday kind of prepping for this, um, the question of this venue change, which it seems like the Trump lawyers are going to push for from Georgia into federal courts. Um, you know, if that happens, maybe that kind of changes the situation where then if Trump wins, he can make the Georgia charges go away. But, you know, I'm wondering, it, it seems like, you know, Fannie Willis has indicated she wants to bring this to a speedy trial, which, you know, I think the time frame I've seen is like a six month type time frame before the trial would begin. There's a lot of complexities having, you know, 19 defendants and she wants to try them all at once. So that could get, you know, very complex. But, you know, if Trump, you know, hypothetically, if he is tried and convicted and that happens before the uh, 2024 election, um, what does that do to his presidential campaign? I mean, is that still, you know, would he still be kind of out awaiting sentencing and then he can still campaign if he wins? You know, could that be something the Supreme Court would weigh in on where maybe they would defer his sentence until after he's done in office. You know, I'm just wondering with this Georgia case in particular, given the uniqueness, you know, that it's a state case, not a, not a federal one, you know, if this could present some unique challenges for Trump on the campaign trail. Aaron, it's usually your question uh, mirrors a lot of questions that I've been asking myself. You, you, you covered a lot in that question. And um, although I'm a, uh, I have one of my identities is, is, is as a, a legal expert on the internet. I, I think it's very important to say the things that I'm not an expert in. One of them is Georgia criminal law. That's point one. Point two is I haven't, I've only skinned this very uh, substantial indictment mm. in uh, Georgia. And I'm not a master of the uh, factual allegations, let alone the legal theories under sure. Georgia law that it, that it um, articulates. But I'll say the following, which I uh, uh, can speak to. Um, first of all, you're right. There's already been a motion filed on behalf of Mark Meadows to do to effectuate what's called a removal of the uh, criminal case to federal court. This is an extremely rare, um, but uh, statutorily provided for <coughs> mechanism to transfer a case brought by a state prosecutor in a state court into federal court uh, with. Uh, it, to, lawyers will be familiar with a similar mechanism that's used to bring civil cases, you know, disputes between private parties into federal court. This is uh, a similar mechanism, but it, it applies to criminal cases. And it's solely for the purpose of protecting 
federal officers. So the idea is if a state, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in broad terms, so if a state prosecutor comes in and interferes essentially with, you know, with 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 a uh, uh, state officer's activities by bringing a criminal case, maybe validly, but still bringing a criminal case against them, it relates to their activities as a federal officer. And they have, among other things, they have to have a, you know, the case has to relate to their work as a federal officer, and they have to have a federal defense, meaning a defense under federal law, under a federal statute of the Constitution. Then the case can be removed into federal court. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So Meadows has uh, uh, already filed a motion to do that. His argument is, in broad strokes, that is the activities that he is being charged criminally with arise from his services, um, chief of staff for Trump. And he says he'll have defenses under federal law or under the constitution. Um, and that, uh, the case should be brought into federal court. Um, who, who if hears he that the entire case will be brought into federal court. Okay. I mean, and, and for, for a motion like that, who, who makes the, the call on that motion? Is it, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, it uh, is made by the federal judge, but uh, it, uh, one feature of this is that the state case continues to go forward unless and until there's a determination that all the requisites for removal are satisfied by the judge. Um, uh, in his motion, Again, just filed yesterday, Meadows says, judges, you, you should just immediately stop the state case. But that's unlikely to happen, uh, in my opinion. Um, so there'll be a fight over this. And ultimately, it could go to the Supreme Court. Um, other defendants, including Trump, might bring the, bring such a motion, although, although, although they can still piggyback on Meadows. So that's one thing. And that's something that people have to keep an eye out for, because then... If that, if that, let us say the federal judge decides that this case should be in federal court, then the prosecutor will have a decision to make. Does she want to fight that determination? Well, then that case will be on ice until it goes to the Supreme Court while this Mm -hmm. removal issue, you know, is decided. Yeah. She may have to make the Hobson's choice. Or she may make the Hobson's choice of litigating the case in the state in federal court. Okay, and then some uh, some have asked, well, then what if Trump is convicted in federal court? Could he pardon himself, or could he stop the prosecution? I don't know if he could pardon himself, but he could certainly muck about in various yeah. ways. He'll probably find it easier. I don't, I you know, it, we're in really un, uncharted territory. Yeah. Um, it's also not even if it's in state court, right? Even if the case remains in state court, it's far from clear that uh, a state court trial proceeding can continue against a criminal trial proceeding can continue against a president. Um, Mm -hmm. This is an issue that that, that didn't. The it seems you, likely you, that it's it, it yeah. seems likely the Supreme Court would weigh in on that, right? Because it is it's yeah. uncharted waters. You would need there's no precedent to refer to, right? So, yeah. Well, in in New York, there were there were there was a civil uh, case against Trump uh, brought by uh, uh, a woman who said that, that Trump um, defamed her by lying about his sexual uh, yeah e. E. Jean harassment of her. Yeah. Sorry. E. Jean Carroll's who you're referring to, right? No, no, there's a, this is oh, a, a, a different individual. I can't remember her name, and I, I apologize. Um, she had, was a contestant on The uh, Apprentice. Okay. Um, uh, at one point. Um, and the issue was, your your viewers may remember the Paula Jones case that was brought against uh, uh, Clinton. Yeah. Um, in that case, the court allowed a federal civil case to proceed against Trump. But the, oh, you're, you're talking about the Paula Jones? I mean, case? Against Clinton. Yes, 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 the Paula Jones case, right? 
the question of whether a state court can try and you know depose etc or in this case try a, criminally try a president um or in that case it was the civil case of how far could it go that was really dicey okay you know and, uh, because uh he's a federal officer he heads the federal government to have a state court exercising dominion over the president literally right. you know in that case a civil proceeding in this case would be a criminal case while he's sitting in the white house it's arguably more than arguably a violation of the separation of powers so people who believe that it's just like a no-brainer that case will continue and trump will be put it'll be, it'll be tried and, and potentially put in jail after he's while he's in the white house i i think that uh, hold your breath on that one. I don't, I, I find that to be uh, unlikely. Yeah. yeah. How, how likely do you think it is that, you know, I, I don't want to get too down the speculation rabbit hole here, but um, I guess my kind of assumption at this point is that it's unlikely we'll see any of these trials before the election. It just seems like there's there's many ways that the defense can kind of drag yeah. things out. Um, but, you know, especially in the Georgia situation, I mean, it does seem like there are going to be many, many hearings that Trump is going to have to physically be there for, um, which could present some challenges in terms of campaigning. Although I do kind of wonder with this upcoming, you know, if it ends up being Biden versus Trump uh, you know, rematch here, um, there's such known commodities that I, you know, I'm not even sure. It feels like we're so polarized that they'd be kind of fighting over like that, you know, I guess, which is kind of all of our elections these days, that 5% in the middle, but um, it, it seems yeah. like it really could present some challenges just from a logistical standpoint, having to be at these hearings and then still trying to maintain some semblance of a campaign amid all of that. I, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as whether it is practicable for any of these cases to go to trial, I tend to agree with you. I will say the, you know, the uh, special counsel team uh designed both cases to maximize the possibility of them going to trial rapidly i'm not an expert in um uh cases involving uh classified documents which are a specialized you know field even within criminal law my understanding is they normally they rarely go to trial first of all because uh the government is reticent about putting these documents on the record and usually when they uh, on the other hand usually when they bring them they have as in trump's case the defendant dead to rights so there's an incentive on both sides to reach a plea deal yeah when they do go to trial it takes an incredibly long period of time uh, to to the pre-trial process which is can be can always be complicated it's particularly complicated but my understanding is that they really structured this case initially to make it possible for it to be brought relatively rapidly they got all the discovery together and prepared to turn it over to trump quickly which is unusual in those cases but of course the judge isn't, has no interest in bringing the case to trial yeah uh, uh rapidly in florida you know judge cannon so that case i think you can i i again i'm not i'm not speaking with some special lawyerly knowledge but my I, I tend to agree with you that that one that case isn't going to trial. And of course, the government's amended the indictment. I think they're kind of that to me is a signal that they kind of expect. You know, the case is going to go on for quite some time. The case in Washington was, uh, you know, I, I, everyone who's uh, praised the indictment as really thoughtful in, in terms of both the way it presented facts to the public, mm. but also the legal strategy. I think, I, I think they're right. So yeah. really tight case, but it involves really tricky, you know, legal the issues. Charges are tricky. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. Well, and, and, and one of the factors there that's probably just worth mentioning is that, you know, Trump was the only one, charged in that case with the unindicted co-conspirators, which I think, you know, from what I've read, seems like that um, reduces the complexity a little bit because they would just be Trump on trial. You know, had they charged some of the co-conspirators, then you're in the situation where, well, do they, right. are they all tried at the same time? Um, you have to kind of unpack the different defenses that are being made. I mean, it's, it's just Trump who would be on trial. So it, it seems pretty straightforward. You're right. But, you know, straightforward, I agree with everything you said, but straightforward in a very, very tricky kind of um 
by de by de by definition yeah. Uh, yeah. situation you know i mean for example virtual uh, 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 virtually all but maybe the sixth because we're not sure who the sixth undetected co-conspirator is it's probably trump's uh uh, Boris, Boris Epstein is pretty yes, yes, probably right Epstein, now. according to Maggie Haberman. She's usually right. But basically, virtually all the co-conspirators, unindicted co-conspirators have been indicted, you know, in Georgia. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a very tricky situation, but you're right. They, they structured it in a in a way designed to make it as simple as it could be made yeah but and, and something that's really kind of jumped out to me and, and this isn't really surprising i wouldn't say but and you probably picked up on this too that um you know of course you have trump lawyers who are <clears throat> blanketing the tv airwaves they're on msnbc they're on fox they're on newsmax they're on oan um and they're very much making a political defense uh, more so than a legal defense which i guess isn't necessarily surprising when you're on tv but, you know, you mentioned earlier that um, they kind of have, you know, these indictments indicate the extent to which they have Trump dead to rights on these federal charges. And um, what's your sense of like, is there even available legal defenses? Um, you know, I'm wondering how this if, if these do go to trial, like what those what the defense is going to look like. I mean, if, if you are just kind of screaming about Hunter Biden or um, like a, you know, rigged justice system, that's not really a legal defense. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily expect them to telegraph that stuff publicly but you know when the facts are this damning you mentioned that in a normal context this would be the sort of situation where a plea deal would be on the table and obviously for reasons that are unique to trump it isn't because he's running for office but um reading these indictments i mean you know is there even like a, a compelling legal argument for the defense uh, to be made here well here is where you know i hesitate to speak because there's so many and i'm not being i'm not being a, a, a sarcastic i'm an legal experts who've spoken before me, I haven't written about, including people who've written about these indictments for for, for your uh, newsletter, uh, uh, Lisa and Liz, who've done really great work. But um, let me say this. First of all, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, and you can tell me if I'm heading into the weeds. I'm a lawyer, and I try not to, but sometimes I do. Um, there is one statutory issue that's a really big deal in the case and that is um the obstruction of an official proceeding mm -hmm. charge which is one of the charges that has been brought against trump that statute was amended after the uh, enron case the supreme court um had narrowed the existing obstruction statute so congress broadened it um and the prosecutors have taken advantage of its current breadth, right, to argue that the official proceeding that was obstructed uh, here was the election, right, and in the in the in the excuse me was the uh, uh, in the counting of the electoral votes, right, right? Yep. and that's uh, although the conduct is different, it's the same kind of theory that is the obstruction of the counting of electoral votes is what's been used against the insurrect number of the insurrectionists, right. And that most judges, except for, uh, I believe, one Trump-appointed judge, have ruled that the government's theory, right, that the counting of the electoral votes is an official proceeding that falls within the scope of the statute, um, that's probably going to go to the Supreme Court, hmm. that issue. Um, so that's one item, right, uh, that, that's in the Trump indictment. It's a legal theory that's going to get tested. Another uh, legal theory that I think much less of myself as a lawyer, but that is um, linked up with the uh, you know freedom of speech kind of argument that you hear on the on you know from Trump people on TV is the good faith argument. Okay, and the idea there is. Um, Trump believed in good faith that his conduct was permissible. Okay. Um, Does, doesn't that now, kind of fall sorry. apart? Because well, doesn't that fall apart with the the analogy of like, um, you know, you you can believe that a bank 
he owes you money, but that doesn't really give you license to go rob the bank, right? I mean, that's kind of where where the good faith thing, at least in my very primitive understanding of how, you know, of, of how the legal system works, it doesn't seem to kind of work in that in that way because you know Trump might have believed in good faith that he won, but that still doesn't give him a right to right. you know put to put together fake sl fake slates of electors and all the things that he did. This is a complicated issue, as you advert to, but let me just try to. Uh, put it in the context that it will arise, which is what kind of jury uh, instruction will Trump be entitled to when this case goes to trial? So one thing we've heard is that Trump will be entitled to a advice of counsel defense argument, uh, instruction. Okay, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, uh, that's a defense that typically comes up, uh, and, and I'm going to use the term, uh, with malum prohibitum statutes, okay? So they're, they're, they're statutes that are malum and say, meaning they're just wrong in themselves, right? And they're, and they're crimes that are malum prohibitum. Like the most common example that comes up is a tax law, right? Where you're charged criminally with creating a false tax shelter, okay? Now you go to a lawyer and she gives you a memo saying this tax shelter is legal. And... You say, look, this is a malum prohibitive statute. I'm, I'm no expert in the tax laws. They're very arcane, right? So I had to go to a lawyer and she gave me this memo and it told me that there, and there were many cases about this. Very few of those cases are even brought, were brought criminal, right? And it's because there's this, the, the guy or who took the, who did this knew exactly what they were doing. They knew it was a crime and they basically had a lawyer, you know, paper it for them, right? Right. And there's all kinds of evidence in that circumstance that this opinion, the opinion they got is a sham, right? And that maybe even the lawyer, the lawyer may have been involved sure. in the in the scheme, and maybe they paid off a lawyer saying, "Hey, if I give you a hundred thousand dollars on the side, will you?" Uh, and you ignore the following facts for me that are relevant. They give me the opinion anyway. There's all kinds of evidence that. Right the uh, uh, legal advice Trump got was sham in nature, right? In fact, and that's and that's a point uh, that that, that uh, the special counsel is making by charging Cheeseborough and uh, sorry, sorry, by naming Cheeseborough and 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 um, Eastman uh, 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 Eastman as co-conspirators, right? Yeah. Well, let, let uh, me. I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question on that point before we, before we get too far away sure. from it because. It, Sure. Yeah. He, Trump was getting really bad advice from, uh, you know, whether you Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, you know, all these people. But also, you know, the indictment talks about how the White House counsel pushed back on Trump. I mean, that, exactly. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's why I question Aaron. I interrupt you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Got too enthusiastic. No, no. You, I think you see where I was going with that. That's exactly the kind of situation where you wouldn't get an advice of counsel defense, right? Is where you've, you, know, you go to five lawyers, they say, this tax shelter is totally illegal. And then you go to the one of them and say, like, I pay you an extra money and ask you to ignore the following facts. Will you give me the, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And then your lawyer is your co-conspirator, right? And that's exactly what went on here, you know, according to the indictment, right? That right. Trump, uh, and, and let me, there's one thing that's really important about this. And the indictment makes this very clear. All of these quote unquote opinions the foundation of them is factually false, right? Because they're all based on the proposition that there was a good faith belief, by you know, by to good reason to believe that there had been a fraud in the under in the election, right? That's the whole premise of all, you know, that if the election, you know, there's massive fraud in swing states, right? What can you, you know, what remedy is available, right? And of course, as the uh, <clears throat> Special counsel indictment makes exceedingly clear there was no such evidence, right? right? Yeah. So the foundation for these, I'm putting these quotes, opinions, right, is a factually false one. And everyone knew it, including Eastman as uh, and Cheeseborough, the lawyers uh, and the other lawyers who were providing the advice. So let me clear so that. That's what I'm, what I'm getting at is, in case I'm being unclear, I don't think he's going to get an advice of counsel. Instru instruction, uh, uh, but nonetheless, one of the charges against him 
is a fraud charge. Now we're used to uh, hearing about fraud charges that are pecuniary in nature. You know, when someone defrauds someone into buying a timeshare or something. Of like course, at a Trump University, it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, that's or, better. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it's a fraud <clears throat> in which the goal was to steal the uh, election. You know, from the voters. So, uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit broad brushed, but that's essentially it's 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 literally the victims of the American people, you know, of this fraud. In a fraud case, a defendant is almost always going to be, almost always being entitled to a good faith instruction, okay? Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, uh, they, yeah, and there'll be some theory about how their actions that, that they'll, they'll come up with some theory that the judge will say meets the, the, the you know the, the, the um minimal standard for getting that instruction they believe this you know against all evidence that what they were doing was you know permissible whatever but getting that instruction isn't doesn't mean you're going to win the the jury's going to buy it are you with me you yeah. know right uh and as you said in this case, there's going to be all kinds of countervailing evidence. And, and there's one other thing which you asked about when you hit the nail on the head. It is not a defense to fraud that you thought lying was in service of a higher end. Okay. And that's what, so it was one thing if Trump said, look, I said there was, this, this is what I imagine the good faith instructions can be based on. I believed that there was fraud in Georgia. I know that there's all this evidence that I was wrong, but I, Donald J. Trump, honestly believed that there was fraud in the, uh, you know, the, the mother and the daughter who we were yeah, who getting death threats were guilty. Yeah. And that's what I imagine the instruction will be. You know, so I didn't, I, you know, I didn't knowingly lie about that. And that would be a defense to a criminal fraud. Okay. Because you wouldn't have the necessary state of mind to commit fraud. If you honestly believe that what you're saying was true. That is actually a defense to fraud, <laughs> uh, criminal fraud. Not necessarily civil fraud, but it's criminal fraud. Um, but it's not a defense, for example, to for, for taking an illegal act, right? And that's where this obstruction of the official proceeding comes in, right? So. Even if Trump honestly believed that there was fraud in Georgia, that doesn't mean that his illegal act of scheming to create fake electors, for example, to, to, and, and, and trying to muck up the counting of the electoral college votes, that's a justification to this, and that's not recognized in the law. I hope I'm, I hope I'm being clear. That's a right. So that's even if he believed that that that, that there was broaden the election that doesn't that doesn't justify obstruction it's yeah. the same idea you know you can't like if you believe you're innocent right uh but there's a witness against you who says you're guilty and you kill them <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no exactly yeah. so they don't testify it's like they were gonna lie about me right. so i killed them i'm giving well, you, you know, yeah. that, that's not a defense you, but you that, mentioned, I, I hope uh, that gets the point, I get, no, no, I, point. yeah yeah absolutely and you know you mentioned that there's no evidence of um the election being stolen well yeah let, let's wait until next monday right because trump has this big news conference where he's promising the the smoking gun uh that the election was stolen from him all these years later he's finally going to make the case so um, right. you know I, i'm actually uh, very very curious to see um i'm sure it will be um an absolute circus but um you know it reminds me of you know that was always kind of mike mike lindell's lane you know, right. uh, te teasing the proof of the election fraud. That's always, you know, his next show, his next rally. He's gonna, 
he's going to have the proof and it, it never seems to uh, yeah. to materialize. But yeah, exactly. I think Mike Lindell's going to be pissed because Trump is now, you know, stealing his thunder. Oh, well, he so. might, maybe Mike Lindell, he might be there. I don't know. We'll see. It's he, uh, he's, yeah. he's teasing a big event on Monday. So uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. I'll probably have some coverage. I'm guessing next Wednesday's edition. I'm of looking newsletter. forward but, to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But last thing here, before we get out of here, you had mentioned um, as we were, DMing in preparation for this that um, you've been following the the Hunter Biden situation. Okay. Um, now, I, I, I know that people uh, I don't want people to turn the, the podcast off if you made it this far in, um, you know, when you hear that we're going to talk about Hunter Biden. But the the, the situation um, that I think you could provide a little bit of clarity on is um, at least inferring from the DM that you sent is this kind of controversy swirling around uh, David Weiss being made special counsel um, there might be, you know, kind of reading between the lines of, of some of the stuff you sent me and just reading news articles, you know, there might be more going on here than, um, you know, than the, the investigation necessarily getting more serious or perilous. It might be, you know, kind of, you might want to bring charges in a different jurisdiction, but, you know, let's, let's maybe back up just a step here with the plea deal that fell apart where, you know, Hunter Biden was going to plead guilty to tax and gun charges that would have in all likelihood kept him out of serving any prison time but you know would have involved other penalties and from what i have read it seems like those charges given the facts here were broadly appropriate now you can find experts who say you know on the the gun charge might have been might should have been maybe a little more stiff or you know the tax charge maybe should have been a little more lenient depending on who the you know um who you talk to there but um you know very broadly kind of explain to us what's going on with the hunter biden stuff um and where you think this goes from here? Sure. First of all, anybody who uh, I'm going to say something that may uh, antagonize them. Anyone who tells you on television that, hey, this should charge should have been brought and that charge should have been brought, disregard what they're saying because they don't know the facts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the facts are not public, and uh, plea agreements are based on a negotiation between the government, which has tremendous power, right? And defendants who have much have no power, right? But uh, uh, in this in this case, of course, Hunter Biden was well represented. So he has more. He had the ability to do what some defendants don't have, which is present to the government in detail the risks they had of losing if they brought particular charges to trial, and that's what you can bet led to the deal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the government. I assure you, didn't say we really want to go easy on you, Hunter. You know, how can we come up with the easiest deal that we can on you? You know, they made a deal um, and it was negotiated over a long period of time and they went to the judge. I'm going to say something that um, uh, is not based on the facts because I don't know the facts anymore, uh, but is. A legal issue um, that, frankly, I think is pretty substantial. Okay, and that is there's a real problem with the government reneging on this deal, which is what they've done. Um, the deal was pretty was you know not unusually complex, but it had a little it had some wrinkles to it. Okay, it had two parts. One was the plea agreement which was a plea agreement relating to the tax charges that he agreed to plead guilty to as misdemeanors. <laughs> and there, you know, the government and the defendant enter into an agreement, right? And the judge either accepts it or doesn't accept it. And that was what that hearing was about. She didn't accept it for various reasons. The reason she didn't accept it is I understand that it related to another part of the agreement, which was the diversion agreement. Okay. And that's an agreement that um, it's commonly entered into with sub- substance abuse. Um, people who have substance abuse problems that led them to, and, and also have criminal problems, right? And so the idea is you're going to stay out of jail, you're going to get treatment. And if you do that, the government uh, for a certain period of time, the government won't charge you. So basically there's an ax being held over your head, right? You're being diverted to uh, treatment and super supervision, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, do, if you stay clean, you'll be fine. Otherwise you'll be charged. Okay. Now, as I understand it, and this, I could have this wrong, but 
the wrinkle was that because this was going to go on for several years, Hunter Biden's lawyers were concerned, probably well-founded concern, that if the DOJ controlled how this diversion agreement worked, they would just charge him, right? No matter what he did, if Trump became president. Sure. So they proposed to have the judge be the one to decide if he was complying. And the judge said, wait a second, this is a diversion program. It's supposed to divert the defendant from the you know, the court system. And it's supposed to be the DOJ that supervises, not me. And she's correct about that. This is an unusual wrinkle, right? You know, the, it, a diversion agreement is not a plea agreement, It's not uh, which is supervised by the court. It's a um, an agreement between the DOJ alone and the defendant. So the judge had a had a reasonable, it appears, basis to say this is weird and problematic because I, the judge, am not supposed to decide whether the government brings charges against someone. That's a right. you know the decision whether or not to bring a charge is a, is a executive branch decision. So I hope I've been clear. That's what that was the weird wrinkle to this okay. was that the diversion agreement involved the judge. Okay. And so she said, I don't want to be involved with that. And I don't think I can. But of course, there had been all this criticism of the agreement. And one of the tricky parts about this deal is that the key element of the deal for Hunter Biden was not in the plea agreement, okay? It was in the diversion agreement. Hmm. And the key benefit for Hunter Biden or for anyone entering a plea deal is they're not going to be charged with anything else, right? You don't say, yeah. okay, I'll, 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 I'll plead guilty you know, to the following charges, risk going, the judge will sentence me to jail, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can charge me with whatever you want afterwards. That's yeah. not what defendants do. So the government has said, we want him to enter into the diversion agreement without any guarantee that we're not going to charge him with anything else. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And that to me seems like a very reasonable thing. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, the, but, so, go ahead. Well, I, I, I want to, I've got like a zoom out question on this a little bit too, because uh, yeah. the reason that we're even talking about this is because it's become kind of this way to sort of both sides, the Trump stuff, I think, to a right, point. Exactly, I mean, exactly. And so, because, yeah. you know, we're, we're in the weeds of um, diversion agreements and kind of how these yeah. plea deals usually work. And, um, you know, I guess it's just, it's help. It's important to kind of be mindful. I agree not, not with that, you. Not that, not that you're not, but I'm just for, for listeners. Well, yeah. I agree with you. And, and I don't, and I don't, I'm not giving this tutorial about, you know, diversion agreements and plea agreements because I think that it's something that everyone should know about. What what I think happened, and I think it's very unfortunate, is that the now special counsel knuckled under the political pressure to um, go after Hunter Biden. You know, there's really no other way to explain what's happening. It's really unfortunate uh, because yesterday they filed a document, incredibly disingenuous document that really it's not good to see the government filing documents like this. Basically saying, you know, we had every right to just enter into this deal and then disregard it with Hunter Biden is the substance of it. And I, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating what they said. I'm spinning a little bit, but that's the substance of it. And I think the only way you can interpret that is that Weiss is under pressure, you know, to... Uh, show that he's being tough on Hunter Biden. And uh, the attorney general, who just, as you said, officially named him a special counsel, isn't going to get near that because he doesn't want to be accused of being biased in favor of the president. And the result is that um, whatever you think of Hunter Biden, I have no particular opinion about him. I don't know anything about him. As I said, I know nothing about the facts underlying his case yeah, what I read in the newspaper, but he's being treated unfairly hmm. um, because of this. Um, and the case it, it, it's, is, is, is not being handled in the way in the way that a normal, you know, white, no normal criminal case, yeah. you know, would be handled. And I think that's really unfortunate.
that, that's interesting. I'm, I'm filing that away because this could be um, I might I might twist your arm sometime down the line to do a piece on, um, the, you know, the unfair treatment of Hunter Biden, because yeah. that is actually yeah. because the, the whole the whole narrative is is the the flip side of it, that he's yes. you know, he the, the sweetheart deal. And um, it is. And that, you know, it's it's an example of like, you know, the Biden's getting up easy and the Trump family being these victims. And so um we will have to leave it there because I, I need to uh, respect the time my producers here too. But um, thank you so much. Really fascinating stuff. We, we covered DeSantis, Trump, even some Hunter Biden. So wide ranging uh, discussion today. And uh, one more time here at the end, I will uh, kind of plug the piece that you uh, wrote and had published today on, uh, you know, kind of a DeSantis's collapsing campaign. The, the second, as you put it, uh, pre-mortem, we've done two, uh, two autopsies on this body already. And it's still um, wriggling around on the table, I guess. So um well, on that note, uh, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and, and thank you for publishing those pieces. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar Show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.